supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. AM 1420, WBSN presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Along with the asylum assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, back after a two-week hiatus, kind of an unplanned two-week hiatus. We knew we were going to miss last week because we were at a Legend Trips event at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But the week before that, Mother Nature decided to give us the night off, which was nice of her. Right. I don't know what you guys did on your night off, but I just kind of relaxed and watched a movie. Yep. I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't too keen on going out that night with the way the snow was coming right. down. I just watched the, the snow pile up outside. That's about it. That's really lame. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I had known, I well, would have invited cable. you over. Still? Ever? No. Like you're never going to get cable? Against it. You do know you could just steal it from your next-door neighbor. Try again, Moonies. I'm not stealing nothing, nothing from this guy. I highly recommend you don't try. So, <laughs> so really, there's nobody on mic three ever. Okay. Good to know. That's something. <laughs> uh, nice to learn. So uh, I think that we've got everybody working now. So M- Moniz, you just hung out and you did nothing on your night off? Nothing. And there goes your microphone again. And now Derek shows up right when we start the show and wants to be let in. So, All right. Yeah, your mic's not working anyway. So We'll figure out while you're gone. We'll figure out which number it is. <sighs> nothing like uh, coming after we've already started the show. Derek? <laughs> We'll give him crap about that when he gets in. That's fine. So uh, last uh, Saturday night, we had a Legend Trips event at the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast. It is our annual Dead of Winter event. We have Dead of Winter and Dead of Summer. And, uh, you, you know, sometimes you go there and you just walk in and you're like, okay, this is going to be a good night here. And I was kind of getting that feeling a little bit when we first arrived. Uh, first of all, we had a great crowd, you know, sold out as always. Uh, and the people that were there were really energetic, and they, they right. seemed to really be ready for this night, and they seemed to be ready to have uh, what was going to be uh, a pretty memorable evening. So when the, you have that kind of electricity already, you're going in there with the expectation of something big is going to happen. You know, we've got enough energy coming in this room that something big is going to happen. And... I had a few instances happen. I was on the third floor. I know, Matt Costa, you were kind of um, floating back and forth yeah, yeah. Uh, throughout the course of the night. Moniz, we'll try again. We'll figure out which microphone you're on. You know what? I'm just going to turn them all on. Might as well. And then we'll figure it out from there. All right. Hello? There, we can hear you there now. There it is. So um, you have an inline adjuster on your headphones. If you can't hear yourself, try that. That might help you out a little bit. So uh, you were in the basement throughout the course of the evening, too. Yes, I was. And uh, I didn't really get a chance to talk to you about what was going on, if you had any activity taking place on your floor. Uh, no, nothing spectacular. Uh, I know that there was activity through the rest of the house, but usually when uh, activity happens in there, it's happening all night. Right. And uh, what, did you talk with Andy about what was going on on the first floor? No, I didn't get a chance to. It was, uh, for me, on the third floor, you know, it was the usual. People had their legs lifted. And uh, at the same time, we also caught a pretty interesting audio clip, which I'm hoping the person who caught it will send to us. Uh, she's she's on vacation right now, but when she gets back, hopefully she'll send it in to us. We were in the chimney room. I hate when my phone does this. We were in the chimney room, and the 
uh, all of us were kind of centered around the bed, the Hosea Nolten room, and we heard what sounded, it was a female voice. It sounded like a female human woman's voice, and but it sounded like a sheep bleeding, you know, like meh, like that type of noise. Mm. And so we all heard it. And we're like, where did that come from? It came from like right next to you here in the room, because when you're on that third floor, of course, in that in that Nolton room, you're right over the John Morse room, which is where all the activities happening on the second floor. And by by activity, I mean that's where all the people are gathered. So you were you'd be expecting that you would hear some of that bleeding through. And I can tell you, I spend most of my time at Lizzie Borden's house for these Legendships events, laying on the floor of that room, you know, watching people's legs get. If an individual up. student oh, at Watching people's legs get lifted up. And when that happens, you know, I can hear the discussion happening in the next room when I'm that close to the floor. However, this was not like that. This was directly in the room with us. So it was a pretty cool catch. Well, we've had that experience before a couple of times. In right. Uh, well, doing our own little investigations and non-legging tripping events. Or we had a uh, We had what sounded like a... A growl happened in that room right in the corner. Well, everybody had their own interpretation of what they heard, but we all heard something. And, and nobody caught it on the the five recorders that were running in the room. Yes. The uh, the other interesting thing, of course, is always the leg lifts. And we had a few people who were skeptical about that who had that happen to them. Uh, so that was pretty unique. Matt, what happened where you were? Any, anything good go on? Um, no, uh, I stayed on uh, the second floor kind of with, uh, with Jeff. Kind of uh, checked out the uh, Connect system. Anything pop up on that uh, at all? No, nothing. I thought I thought we might get something because you know, I would have thought that would have been the place right, that it would right. happen. Uh, we had a um, a guest. Um, we were doing some Ouija board work, and she she needed to leave. She got kind of got a little um, uh, overwhelmed, so I had to go out and help her with that. But um, thankfully, she was okay. I think the connect was on the wrong floor, in my personal yeah. opinion. I don't think it would have. I, I wanted to see it in the basement, to be honest. That's with you. what that's I, where I would have liked to. Have and seen and it. Jeff and I talked yeah. about this, uh, you know, during the course of the event. We're going to go back some night when it's just us, and yeah. Jeff's going to come down. He's going to bring the connect system. We're going to set it up in the basement, and we're going to let it run all night down there, because that's where Moniz and I saw that shadow figure yeah. mm-hmm. uh, repeatedly. And then maybe we can even run it maybe also uh, up on the third floor where Leanne recently had an experience yep. uh, in which a shadow stopped and ran right by her on the staircase. I was going to say, why don't we put it on the first floor by the back door there and face it up the staircase? There's lots of different places where yeah. we can try that, uh, but I, I definitely want to make sure we put it in the basement. Yes. Because that will be uh Remember those college kids? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was funny. And they were blown away by it. And we weren't even there. We just stopped in to say hi on the yeah. anniversary. We were just like, just, we were in the neighborhood, thought we'd come, because we were actually, we were down the street yep. at the, uh, at the Quickishan Club. Club. yeah. And we just happened to stop in, and it turned out to be one of our most profound experiences there. So, pretty interesting stuff. And if you would like to go on a Legend Trips event, a Legend Trips event with us, we do have just six tickets remaining for the Mark Twain House coming up on April 12th. And this is a place that nobody has ever been allowed to have a paranormal event there. People are trying to get in there again and again. Uh, you know, it's hard when you're a historical organization to let in just anybody off the street. You don't know who to trust in the field. But 
the name Legend Trips has already begun to mean something in the historical community. They know what we're all about. We've raised just about $20,000 now to help benefit these historic haunts. So they know that when Legend Trips comes knocking, not only are you going to make a, a pretty good chunk of change for a night's work, but you're also going to be bringing in quality individuals because all of our guests, of course, they have the respect for the location and they care more just as much about the history as they do the haunting. So... There's only six tickets left for that. They're $99 each. They include dinner. They include a historical tour. Uh, they include hours of guided investigation. We'll have the Xbox Connect system there. We'll have all the tools that we use there. Uh, you never know what kind of crazy experiments we're going to come up with. Uh, also, we will have, uh, on that particular night, we have a, a hotel deal. For $99, you can get a hotel room at the uh, Holiday Inn and Express right there in Hartford, about two miles from the Mark Twain house. And apparently it's a big deal that not only do you get free breakfast, but you get free parking included with that room because a lot of those hotels down there, they charge for parking because there is no on-street parking. You're in downtown, downtown Hartford. So they charge to get into their lots and their garages. Well, the parking and the breakfast are included, free Wi-Fi in your room. Uh, what a great deal for $99. That's like $20 or $30 off the regular price for that night. So uh, there's a very limited amount of rooms available too. Uh, and if you need that information, I sent out an email to all the people uh, already attending the event. Uh, but if you need that information, you can always email me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, uh, to find out more. So there's, again, six tickets remaining for the Mark Twain House event. They'll be gone by next week, I'm sure. However, we also did just announce in pre-sale our next event, which I'm not going to give away the location on the air, but it's in Massachusetts. It's up, up near the New Hampshire border. So it'll be a little bit of a hike for us, but for a lot of our regular legend trippers, they get to stay close to home. And it's a place that not a lot of paranormal investigators have been in yet. They've only been allowing people in for investigations for the last year and a half. And there's already been a great amount of uh, information coming out about the haunts that are going on there. And there's, there's definitely a female presence in this location that does not want people in certain rooms and on certain floors. So this might turn into a, a pretty good challenge here this night, uh, trying to contend with, with this spirit and being able to investigate this house. So that has been announced in pre-sale. So if you are on the Legend Trips email list, if you have ever been to one of our events, or if you went to the website legendtrips.com and signed up, you should have received that email. Uh, I sent it out on Friday afternoon, and it has the link to purchase your tickets before they're on sale to the general public. Again, those tickets also $99, which is where we try to keep all of our events. Uh, and we will have a hotel deal announced for that shortly uh, as well, I'm sure. But for right now, if you are interested in going, make sure you snatch up those tickets because they are limited, and uh, we will be putting them on sale to the general public this week. So by next week's show, we'll be able to reveal that location uh, to people. But I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, I get excited about all of our Legend Trips events, but I see these photos that Frank Grace takes of these places that he goes to, and I say, wow, each one just looks even more cooler than the one before it. So... Uh, I'm pretty amped up. And we're trying to find a lot more new locations this year. So if you have any suggestions of where we can go legend tripping, you can send them to us, uh, info at legendtrips.com, and uh, we'll be sure to check. Usually we send Frank out as our advance man, you know, because he loves to go out and take photos of these places. So he'll come back and let us know uh, how they are. All right. Well, why don't we do a little bit of our strange and unusual news before we get into our discussion with tonight's guest, Derek Gunn. Hello, Derek. Just wanted to say hello. Hey, guys. Good to see everybody. Didn't mean to ignore you here, but we're just rambling on. No, do your thing. We'll get to our thing in a little while. Absolutely. We're going to talk about some really strange stuff tonight, so you're not going to want to miss that. And you can also call into the show at any point, 508 
877-996-1420. I want to say hello to all of the new listeners. We gained a ton of new listeners, I'm sure, tonight uh, after the kind retweets from the one and only Chris Jericho uh, about Spooky South Coast after Jeff Belanger, our good friend and our partner in Legend Trips, was on Talk is Jericho. And if, if you don't listen to that podcast, I highly recommend that you do. It's not just about the wrestling world, like a lot of people may think. Uh, there's a lot of information there about the entertainment industry, about sports, uh, about general life stuff. And he had Jeff Belanger on as his guest talking about ghosts uh, this past week. And what a great show they did. I, you know, I'm nervous here. I tweeted out I've been doing this for almost 10 years now, and, and Chris Jericho is just as good at it in one hour as I have been in 10 years. So, hey. That's fine with me. The, the guy's good at everything that he does. So uh, go and check that out. I got to say, it blew my mind to hear Chris Jericho plugging Legend Trips. That was just insane. To hear him say yeah. that people should go to legendtrips.com and check out all the events, man. <laughs> it's, it, it really it was like I couldn't believe it. I was driving in my car when I was listening, and I almost had to pull over. I was like, here's one of my favorite people and you know, one of my favorite entertainers, uh, and he's talking about Legend trips, so it just goes to show you, you know. It's nice to nice to get a, a Jericho bump, you know. Right. Yeah, 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 I don't mind it at all, uh, you know. And if he wants to come on this show, he's welcome anytime. <laughs> so I'm I'm sure he's listening now. All right, it's time I think for us to get a little weird. If that's is that all right with you guys? If we get a little weird. Do it. it all all right, <laughs> let's do it. More bad news. And well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the Week in Weird. All right, well, we have some stories here to talk about. Uh, most of them come from The Week in Weird on our Twitter feed. You can just follow us on Twitter at SpookySC. You can also check out The Week in Weird page on SpookySouthCoast.com. This is a story that everybody was sending me this week. A South Texas family claimed they shot and killed the infamous Chupacabra after coming face-to-face with the strange coyote-like animal on their property. Doug Ort and family were at home in Victoria County Ranch Sunday night when they heard a chilling howl. Be quiet there, commercial. Uh, my grandson ran outside and shot him from about 240 yards, said the 79-year-old Ort. It's mangy-looking, and it's got long hair on the back and on the hair on its legs. Uh, the grandkid said, oh, that's a chupacabra, he said. Well, that, that explains it right there. I mean, why contact Lauren Coleman when your grandkids can just tell you? The chupacabra is said to closely resemble a coyote, but with a skinny, hairless body and patches of mangy hair. It also has a reputation for sucking the blood from livestock, hence its name, meaning goat sucker in Spanish. So they've been hearing howls uh, about this time, about that time of night for the past year or so. There have been numerous other sightings over the years of, of the chupacabra, but you know, here's the thing: I, I looked at some of the photos of this online. It looks like a mangy coyote. Well, they say it's a cross between a coyote and one of the Mexican hairless dogs. It's a, is, that, is that a considered some type of coy dog or something? Is that what that is? Yeah, it's a, something that is like a mixture of stuff that they've done genetic tests on. It is a member of the canine family. I'm just surprised that these people didn't eat it uh, after reading the story. 
I'm surprised that uh, it wasn't served up Texas Chainsaw Massacre style. Pretty good shot at 250 yards, though. Well, it doesn't say how old the kid is, but, you know, you never know. Matt Costa, I know that you wanted to. I know that I you did. put this story up for I, sure. I did. I did. You want some kitten with that coffee? The San Francisco Bay Area is getting the United States' first and second cat cafes. So first not only are they getting second. the first, they're getting, two. they're getting two cat cafes. A feline phenomenon by way of Japan that reimagines cafes as oases where patrons can kick back with a hot drink and a resident cat. Hmm. The Kit Tea in San Francisco and Cat Town Cafe in Oakland are both in the planning stages, but will function slightly differently. Health codes allowing the two cafes are hoping for 2014 openings. Kit Tea will be a halfway home for adoptable cats and is partnered with two shelters to populate the cafe. Its founders haven't nailed down a location yet, but aim to provide a relaxing alternative to bustling coffee shops and bring the stress-relieving properties of pet ownership and catnip-infused tea to visitors. So Cat Town will also focus on adoptions and will welcome anyone in for free playtime. You know, I don't know if you've ever tried to get a cat to go anywhere, but it doesn't go well. No, they're, they're kind of uppity. They don't like to do anything. <laughs> they, they, you can't get them to go into the cat carrier. If you try to bring them out on a leash, forget it. They just <laughs> dig their claws in and refuse to go. I, I, I don't think the promise of tea and scones will get my cat to leave the house. <laughs> I, I did used to go to a bar that had cats. <laughs> Killed so. us? Maybe. <laughs> it, it was very. It was a very relaxing atmosphere. Right. And, and remember our old dog that you yep, yep. Oh yeah, there's a shrine to the dog. How can you forget? He used to drool on you. Just yeah. Drool. Uh, it's. I don't know which bigger, the shrine to the dog or to her husband. <laughs> it, no, really. Wait, yeah. I'm serious. All right. So uh, yeah. So the cat cafes are coming to the Bay Area. Uh, I cannot wait to get out there and try and. It sounds terrible. You, you put that up there just so you could use I that did. joke. Oh, man. The cat is out of the bag now, Costa. All right, and here's one more story. The official center of the world is, of course, in California. Not where the cat cafes are coming, but no, it's the town called Felicity. It was deemed the actual official center of the world, and there's a plaque there to commemorate it. Started by a Frenchman named Jacques-André Itel. The town has at most a handful of residents, but you can stop and check out the site only from December through March. You have to call ahead to make sure they're open. It's just another one of those weird, bizarre roadside stops. The exact perfect center of the world in Felicity, California, proving what the TV show tried to convince us of for so many seasons, that Felicity is indeed the center of everyone's universe. Right. I never saw that show. Me either, yeah. but I just I my saw question it, is how did they decide that to be the center? I think because they put up a plaque and everybody just okay. assumed they were correct. Is it because it, it can't be based on landmass, right? It's I was going to say the be, be, based on landmass, the exact center of all landmass is actually the uh, plateau. Strangely enough, see if there's any explanation. Hmm, I'm looking here, but I don't see criteria. I don't see that, but. If you go and stand on the exact spot, you get a certificate from a town official, and you get to make a wish. You can, you can also pay $200 and have your name inscribed on the wall for the ages. So, yeah. Sounds like a, a groovy, happy town named, you know, Felicity, meaning happiness, of course. So. Sounds more like a tourist trap to get oh. you to spend 200 bucks on having your name put on a wall. <laughs> but, hey, whatever. If you ever are in the town of Felicity, California, just know that you are in the exact center of someone's universe. <laughs> All right, that does it for the weekend weird for this week. If you have any stories you would like to share with us, you can just tweet them to us at SpookySC. 
And Matt will retweet them out there and collect them up on the Weekend Weird page on SpookySouthCoast.com. And you will be able to tell all of your friends, hey, I got retweeted by the show that got retweeted by Chris Jericho. There you go. Each week we're getting progressively more incentivized and, and, you know, delivering the Weekend Weird to us. All right. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we will get right into the conversation with tonight's guest, Derek Gunn. You can check out his website by going to our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll be back in just a few moments with more here on Spooky South Coast. Hello, ghosts. Come in, ghosts. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening. Oh, great Odin's raven. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. So I just went right with the beginning. It's hard. But, you know, you don't get to hear the whole song. Well, yeah. I know. You don't want to pick up the phone when there's somebody. We're just having a radio show here. That's all right. Yeah, uh, we, uh, yeah we're, we're actually, we're back on the air. It's all right. You, know, you, you can do whatever you have to do, Derek. We're, 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 no, we're here whenever you're ready. <laughs> All right. Joining us tonight is Derek A. Gunn. The A stands for awesome because he came all the way down here to the studio. No, I'm not talking to you, phone. This is going to be like a regular segment on the show. I might legally change my name from Alexander to awesome now after that. I like that. I think think there's now precedent. So if you go before the judge. That was very kind. Thank you. uh, But uh, you are kind enough to come all the way down here. I know it's a bit of a hike for you. Yeah, not bad. But it, uh, it always works better, you know, when we can see each other face to face, especially when we're going to be talking about, you know, the wealth of information that we'll be discussing tonight. I haven't seen you since uh, since we went to some of these Bridgewater Triangle screenings. I haven't been to any since the Bridgewater State College one. Uh, I don't know if you've had the chance to go to some more of them. Oh, yeah. I've been to uh, several now. Uh, let's see. I went to the last one was the Dedham Community Theater. Before mm-hmm. that, I went to several at the um, the Alley Theater in Middleborough, which yeah. was a, it's a nice little theater. It's a great. I mean, both of them were not very nice, but the, the Alley Theater is a little, a little small, a little more intimate. I think it maybe holds 100 people. And uh, it's been some good Q and A's afterwards with some of the, some of the people from the film. That's what I've been hearing. I've been hearing that as as there's more and more showings, uh, there's a lot of repeat people who are coming to see the film again, and they're coming armed with more questions that they've put together in the time between screenings. Uh, has it been? It seems like it's been warmly received everywhere it's been. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's. I mean, it keeps selling out in Middleborough. I know that, and uh, it was funny. The last one I went to, I think, was February 9th. It was the one in Dedham. And, you know, in the movie, I'm principally there, kind of the rock stuff, the fringe archaeology stuff. Um, but usually at, in Middleborough, it was mostly ghost questions and things like that, or people relating their own experiences that, that they had strange things happen to them or their, their aunt or something. In uh, Dedham that night, it was wild. It was people asking me about uh, King Philip's Rock and Sharon and, and Chambers. It was like a lot of rock questions. Uh, nice. You know, so you stuff. were the rock star that I night. Was, yeah, it was, it was a good night. It was, it was actually like a, it 
was kind of a night geared towards me, so it was it was nice. You know? Well, we had Aaron on a few weeks ago, and he mentioned that um, you know there does seem to be almost a theme that runs through some of the questions in the Q and A sessions, depending on where they are, and that sometimes there will be a very ghost heavy night. Sometimes it'll just be a night of people who want to share their own experiences and say what's happened to them and what strange things they found in the triangle. So uh, the important thing is that each time it's being shown, there's more and more people that feel comfortable discussing this, and they're going to go to work the next day or to school or whatever, and they're going to tell everybody, hey, I saw this film last night, and they're going to keep the discussion rolling, and before you know it, you know, it'll just be something that we can all talk about freely instead of having to just keep to ourselves on these weird radio shows and websites like we do. I, I think that um, what I've noticed is that, um, you know, well, Matt and Aaron put up that section of the website, the Bridgewater Triangle documentary website, where you, know, you can re- relate your own experiences and share. Mm-hmm. So that was a great idea because... I think that they've already had, you know, multiple stories put up that no one would know about except for this movie. So, you know, someone had an experience and um, they probably told people, you know, in the immediate, you know, circle of whatever, of, of connections. And then now it's on the Internet and people are sharing, you know what I mean? And more information is getting out there. So, so. And this movie's being seen, uh, you know, worldwide now. And we should point out we've done a few pay-per-views uh, on Spooky TV. And now they've been able to make it available as an on-demand uh, viewing on Vimeo, so you can purchase it through Vimeo and get it, you know, much better quality, <laughs> and uh, you'll have it for a 48-hour rental. So there's another option for people to be able to uh, experience the film and see it, and to, you know, I, I have friends, uh, people who listen to the show across the country, across the world, and they're dying to see the movie, but they can't make it out to any of these screenings locally. And of course, the the problem with the the live streams that we did with the pay per view streams is, again, you have to be right in front of the computer at that time. So now with this Vimeo option, they'll be able to watch it anytime they want to, uh, in the comfort of their own home or, or wherever they choose to watch it, and they'll be able to watch it on their own schedule. So uh, you can go to the Bridgewater Triangle documentary.com to find out more about that. But now, are you seeing an increase in interest in your work now that the film has started to, to hit? I think so. I've noticed that, you know, when I check out my website and the numbers, the things are growing, definitely. You know, the, the trend is going up. Now, we all seem to have our different uh, niches that we found within the discussion of the Bridgewater Triangle. You know, I talk a lot about the big picture stuff, and I talk a lot about the ghost stuff. Moniz is a go-to guy for the crypto stuff, for the uh, UFO stuff. Uh, And, of course, you know, you've got John Brightman, who's out there, boots to the ground, talking a lot about the cult activity. Everybody seems to have found their own thing. And you mentioned, of course, that you are known as the rock guy. But, I mean, how would you describe your work in this field to people overall, not just what's featured in the Triangle document? Uh, overall, I would say, you know, the, the satanic cult stuff, and that's that my, my interest in my research is very weak on that stuff. That's not that's not my kind of thing at all. Um, and I'm, it's fine. People are into it. That's You know, everyone has a different, like you said, they're, that they're... Right. No, you're scared. Areas. You can say it. You're just scared. I just... <laughs> my, just myself, I've always been interested. Actually, I mean, I have a lot of overlap with a lot of you guys. I mean, I, when I got interested in all this back around 92, 93, it started from, like, the Westford night and lead, led into, like, the Dighton Rock type stuff. But very quickly, when I was doing books on archaeological oddities, you get mentions of the, the cryptids, sea serpents, lake monsters, um, just whatchamacallit, you don't even know what to call. Um, and I have a strong interest in ufology, and, uh, and a lot of stuff kind of, I, I, I kind of steal, my thinking really kind of, kind of comes from John Keel a lot. Mm-hmm. I mentioned him last time I was with you guys, I really like John Keel's thinking on this about the ultra-terrestrials and how all these oddities might be sort of coming from a similar source, but manifest differently to different people. Right. And um, so, I mean, I'm kind of Especially in this movie, because that's what the section I'm in. I'm kind of known as like the fringe archaeology guy, in the, and and I love that department. That's really what got me into all these oddities. But I mean, 
really, you know, to go way backwards here, I got into this, and I think I mentioned this last time too, that, you know, as a kid it was like In Search Of and Ripley's Believe It or Not, little paperbacks. And mm-hmm. I always loved stuff that was sort of outside the the norm, you know, and I always gravitated towards that. I don't know if it's because those are the kind of shows I watched when I was six years old or my father had Chariots of the Gods, you know, and I, and I saw it in the bookshelf and I took it and put it in the, and I was in the back of the car going on a long trip. I mean, I just always was into that kind of stuff. And then when I found out about the Westford Night, up in Westford, and I found out, I think it was about 20, I was like 1987-ish, and uh, that just led me into the whole, like, well, there's all this curious archaeology to New England and Viking well, things. And Well, don't you have a direct connection to the Westford Night? Wasn't one of your relatives part of Sinclair's party? Well, I can't prove I go back to that guy, but we do supposedly, show, you know, he was supposed to be James, Sir James Gunn, and my last name is Gunn, so, uh, you know, possibly. Okay. <laughs> I like to think so, but I have never proven that, but yes, that's the... Well, family name. Yes, yeah. it's the. I mean, it's definitely. They think that Sir James Gunn is the identity of who the Westford Knight was. Um, yeah. At least that's the current thing. Well, I mean, for those who might, may have missed your first appearance, just kind of give a brief explanation of what the Westford Knight is. <clears throat> okay, the Westford Knight is a carving uh, off a of depot street that uh, it was formed in a punch marked, you know, dot by dot fashion. Uh, it's not carved in like a like with a line. It's carved dot by dot, and it was. Um, in the history of Westward Book, I believe in the 1880s. I believe that art type is called stippling. It's like stippling, exactly. It's peck-marked peck and stippled into the rock. And uh, in the 1880s it was known, but they thought it was an Indian tomahawk. Okay? And in 1954, uh, Frank Glynn, uh, who I believe was like a postmaster over in Connecticut, he went up there and he kind of cleared away some of the gr- overgrowth and stuff around this rock. And he just, he, what he thought he found was an effigy of a whole six-foot-long knight that this supposed tomahawk was actually a broadsword no. and that there was a, 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 a faint face and that there was a shield next to the sword. The tough part about the Westford Knight is it's like over 600 years old. Like 1998 was 600 years from the supposed when this was allegedly supposed to be carved. Some people think it's a natural formation. It is not natural. There, I mean, that sword is definitely there. But I think that the person who carved it was miles away from his ship. He was probably a guy who had like a hammer and a punch. He probably was the guy who fixed your armor and your tools. And his punch got dull through time. So he used the striations on this rock, the glacial striations, for, like, the legs and part of, like, the overcoat and stuff. So that has led people to think that it's just a natural formation. Um, but it's not. I mean, the sword is definitely there. And, you know, but the, but the difficulty is it, this thing's 600 years old. It's been beaten up by the weather. It's had ice on it for 600. You know what I mean? It, it's it's exposed to the elements, and now it's beside a main road in Westford, so all that, you know, the acid rain and the things from all from salt, the from the, you know, all of that is just chewing this thing up um, through the years. And um, they believe that it is, that the Westford night is a relic from the Prince Henry Sinclair voyage of the late 1390s, like 1398, 1399-ish. They believe this guy came over here, Prince Henry Sinclair, from the Orkney Islands, that he probably stopped in Nova Scotia, which is wicked cool because right in Nova Scotia, New Scotland came from Scotland and up in no. but it was Nova Scotia later. Mm-hmm. But coincidentally, he stopped in Nova Scotia because some of the accounts uh, mentioned uh, mountains like with pitch burning and there's some spots in Nova Scotia that fit that. And then they think that maybe some of the party went up the Merrimack River and that they went up the Stony Brook off of the Merrimack and ended up in what's now Westford because there's the um, Prospect Hill is there and it was the meeting point of several like. I heard like multiple, like multiple Indian trails led to the top of the hill, and they think that basically that they might have been led by native guides. Maybe that's one of the think, thoughts about it, and that one of the party died, 
And from what I understand, I believe these guys, and I, I can't say this 100%, but I think I read somewhere that they might have been like cousins, like first cousins, mm-hmm. and they both probably like in their late 50s. So being 58 in 1398 is yeah, not like being sense. 58 like right now. Right. No. And if you're going up a hill in armor, and also you have Native Americans, you know, language barriers, you know, things could turn ugly quickly. And the fact that the, the Westwood Knight's sword has a line across it, meaning death in battle maybe. So maybe... Yeah, this wasn't like the the uh, European visitors of the 1600s, where they've already become kind of a common sight. Uh, this is at a point when any stranger would have probably been met with uh, either great reverence or, uh, yeah. <laughs> or probably would have been uh, attacked. And imagine how just like a, a, a how quickly if you have two people don't speak the same language, a misunderstanding can happen. Someone could just make a gesture, and All right. people's nerves yeah. are on edge, you know. And and think about it. those Scottish guys up in like the Orkneys. They they were like kind of Nordic the. Uh, the uh, Orkneyans, they were kind of of Nordic ancestry, like Gun, you know, Gunbjorn, Gunnison. These were basically Viking-ancestored people who lived in North Scotland and meeting with Indians. They're both badass people. They're both tough people. You know what I mean? So, as you guys say, they, they they weren't small people. No, sizable people, yes. both of them. Yeah, good statured people. You know. So, I mean, that being one of the stories that first kind of drew you in, and then where, where did oh, you? Oh well, let me. All right, if I could just. I'm sorry, I kind of got off track there a little bit, but. It actually just was a Christmas present for my father. I, I got a book in 1987 for Christmas time, The Highland Clans. And in a footnote in that book, I, I opened it up before I wrapped it. And, uh, you know, you turn to the McKays and the McGregors and the, the different clans. And I turned to our page just to see what it said. I remember, you know, I remember vividly I was, and I was wrapping it. And there was a little footnote that said, surprisingly enough, this family's coat of arms is etched on a rock in Massachusetts in or about 1395. I don't know why the book said that. Usually you see 1398 or 1399, but this book said 1395. And I remember reading it because it just, I thought it was a typo. It just didn't make any sense. Like, what would my family coat of arms being, would it be doing? There are not supposed to be any medieval, late medieval knights walking around what's now Massachusetts at that point. It's a very strange period of time. If you're in Scotland, it's not that, you know, this house is over there that old. But if you are in Massachusetts, not much is supposed to be going on you know, outside Indian stuff right. in 1390s. You know, it's just a kind of a funny time. You know, it's post-Viking. It's pre, you know, Gosnold and all that stuff. You know, so it's just kind of or even the Portuguese sailors of the 1500s probably. You know, it's just kind of a funny time, 1390s. There's nothing really supposed to be happening here, like, on that level. So that kind of made that connection in your mind that, you know, this is this is a, the rabbit hole that you're ready to fall down. Well, it, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I hate to say it because I was into other things like music and th- other things a little more at the time. So it took me about four or five years to get up there. So around 91, 92, I finally, I was about 25, I made it up to Westford. I met with uh, Virginia Kimball, um, Norman Bigart, and a few of the people, uh, Bill Collins, um, up in the Westford Night Committee. And it actually was Virginia Kimball. I got to give her credit because when we were talking at her house one day about the Westford Night, she said, well, you know, Dark, this thing isn't isolated, right? I mean, and she, I forget even what she said now. I don't know if she mentioned America Stonehenge or probably Dighton Rock, for example. But she said, you know, there's other things, you know, like this. And we talked about this the last time, majorly, about how you can grow up and go to school in a town. You don't need, something could be in your backyard, maybe, and you don't even, right. you know, the Fearing Tavern you mentioned. And, um, you know, it, it, it was like, okay, there's all these other curiosities, too. So that led me, yes, into that rabbit hole of, well, wait, there might have been Vikings on Cape Cod, and, and there's maybe even earlier stuff, like almost like Phoenician-type people or Celtic people, you know, this chamber. It just... It led to a lot of other stuff, the Westwood Night really. And you realize that, th- you know, that history is not being taught to you, but it is accessible for you to go out and find on your own if you're willing to do the digging and willing to do the research. Uh, and that there is a community of people who have been researching this around here. It just hasn't made it into the lesson plan of the local high school. Well, you know what it is? It's, it almost relates back to my interest in the trickster stuff. There's evidence. There seems to be, you know, with the smoke this fire, there seems to be evidence 
that people were here before Columbus. But there's no, like, you don't find this massive, uh, like, the place in Canada where they know the Vikings stayed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There isn't that level of, that, level, that indisputable level. And that's what a real archaeologist, you know, a real archaeologist probably would, I mean, sort of a mainstream one, would probably have a lot of problems with the things I say. I understand that. And, I, you know, they want science and they want, and there's, but there's all these dribs and drabs of something was happening. And even if you look at the layout on a map of America where you find these kind of oddities, a lot of them are clustered in New England. And then you go down, you look up the Mississippi River, and they're clustered on tributaries of the, you know what I mean, of the uh, Mississippi. So it seems like, well, New England's the closest point over to Europe, right? And as you get down towards Pennsylvania, they start to thin out a little bit, mm-hmm. and then you get down to Florida. If you, know, if you just graph it on a map, it looks like the closest point to Europe has the most stuff, like you'd expect it to. You know right, I mean? exactly. If there was kind of little incursions and glancing blows of culture. So it, and, and you're talking about you know the mainstream, arche- mainstream archaeologists who are uh, kind of having it put in their lap with enough evidence to say, okay, here, oh, yeah, well, well so it's easy to make that connection then. But with what you're doing, you have to kind of extrapolate and find some of these common themes and maybe go beyond just what is there physically and, and go just what beyond is recorded and kind of piece together that narrative on your own, which I think is is probably a lot more of a challenge uh, to be able to do that and to not fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, if we have this, then we can just assume that this and this and this and this. You know, you have to really dig and really find the stuff to back that up. So to me, you know, that's, that's got to be a harder job than just saying being the archaeologist who finds the giant landing spot for all the Vikings, you know. I think the the I agree with you, and I think the other thing too that I didn't mention, but it plays into this with with say the mainstream archaeologist viewpoint and uh, and someone who's like a little more fringe, is all the history of hoaxes and thing. I mean, you, you have to factor that in. That would right. get, that would lead people to believe that most of it's nonsense, right? Because there have been hoaxes, and there have been misinterpretations, and the, so it gets very complex. I think the issue is a complex issue, and um, I think that. Um, I think that kind of archaeology is opening up everyone. You know, I see things on TV, and I see different – I've met a few people that they seem more open-minded about it. I mean, I think of, like, Kurt Hoffman over at, in, in Bridgewater State. I mean, I've spoken to him sometimes, and he – you know, he's an anthropologist. And he seems kind of open to transoceanic contact, you know, through the years. He seems more – you know, so, I mean, I think it's probably, you know, if we can believe uh, in, in even more fringe stuff like, you know, yeah, alien visitation is like that. Right, yeah. People going across the ocean in a... That's not really not that, that big really, of a deal. It, yeah. it shouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, look at the world, Guinness Book of World Records on the smallest craft to go across. I mean, people go over like in almost like, like little 10-foot things now. You know what I mean? How many so, coconuts wash up ashore on shores of whales? You know, it doesn't have to be human. Nature yeah. crosses oceans all the time. Yeah. And, that, and I ever saw an, an archaeologist on TV. He actually... It was funny what he was doing because he was admitting that things just... Because of Gulf Stream type action, Wood probably came here. But well, how he took out it, how he changed it into it not being sort of valid was he was like, well, we're talking about deliberate navigation here. In other words, say some Phoenician ship, and the Phoenicians had amazing ships. So the Celts actually, if they could, if the Phoenicians came over here by accident, you know, just a storm took them out of the Straits of Gibraltar, and they just ended up in uh, what's Brazil or something, right? They came across. That's the answer. They did. Yeah. It wasn't who cares what how it happened. It happened, right? But this guy, I think it was Brian Fagan, he's like, you know, but we're talking about deliberate navigation. Like, he, like even just the accidental thing wasn't good enough for him. Like just, he wanted a case where it was deliberate. So I, you know, right, because, you know, Lord knows we want to celebrate accidental discoveries of the new world. <coughs> Columbus. <laughs> but uh, when, you, when you start to go into this and you start to, to look for these pieces to put together, it probably does start to um, show up quite a bit that we have 
use a lot of revisionist history in some of these stories. Uh, and the Bridgewater Triangle, for example, is rife with that. We have, because you know, you've you've tried to talk to to the people associated with the Your local station tribes, for this, and uh, I've tried to do it as well. You know, I've tried to get the Wampanoags to come on the air and discuss some of these things, and they won't. You might hear a little bit bits and pieces kind of off the record, but we can't really get this story. So we start kind of putting our own what I call the white man spin on everything, and so therefore it's going to have that tinge of the way that we see things, and. The, one of the prime examples, of course, is the Hockamock Swamp. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear all these stories about how the natives wouldn't go there, that it was the place where spirits dwell, where evil dwells, the devil's swamp, whatever whatever you want to attribute to, to Hockamock. And I know that you've actually done some of the research into that. Yeah, I, I actually, um, I think what the thing is, when, when you read a book or, or even in the movie, it, it kind of gives a, sometimes it's like when a news story happens somewhere, you know, and you're interviewed for 40 minutes. But then on the news, it's like a 10-second segment. The way they want to tell the and story. It's, and, it's, and I think that, in like, exactly. And I think in, like, most books, um, most people, when they talk about it online a lot, for example, it's kind of translated. It's usually translated as place of the spirits, a place of evil spirits or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think what it is is it's an, actually it's a much more complicated answer. And if we have a couple minutes, I'd like to sure. kind of throw it out at you. Okay, it, what I think it is. And this is just my personal opinion only. Um, I think that... The Native Americans, as I understand it, they had, you know, a pantheon of gods. And the good god, you know, Katan, Kantanta, whatever you want to, you basically didn't have to do much to make him happy. He was sort of always omnipresent. He's there. He's on your side. You don't need to really do much for him. The trickster figure god, Habamako, you want to do rituals to get him off your back. You want to appease him, make him happy, because one day he might help you get to game. The next day he might help you get lost in the swamp. So when the... Puritans saw Native Americans appeasing a trickster figure, which they would have equated with the devil. Mm-hmm. They presumed that the Native Americans were devil worshippers. That's just where they were coming from. So indirectly, when we have a rock that's called like an Indian rock or devil's rock, or when we start saying that Habamak or Hakamak means like evil spirit place, I think we're actually perpetuating a, like a hundreds of year old mistake. A misperception. It's a it's a very sound theory. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially when we say, well, you know, because we've asked this question before. We've asked you this question. How come every town has a devil's rock? You know, how come every town has a witch's rock? How come every town has a rock where some sort of evil sacrifice, uh, some sort of altar? And maybe it wasn't an altar in terms of evil sacrifice. Maybe it was somewhere where, you know, the natives just gathered. And it became their kind of uh, centerpiece. Exactly. And, and so, therefore, we have to attribute this to Because the rock is prominent and easily seen. It's not that it's, you know, any magical thing to it. It's just, hey, there's a big rock that we can right. all see it, from it becomes, here. Yeah. It becomes a navigational point, yeah. which, I mean, we do that when we're kids. We don't yeah. know what street is what and what route is what. We say, go down to that big rock, take a left. You'll see that tree that's split into a V, and then go four more steps from there. The, the thing, um, really, too, is... I mean, and I'm probably repeating it in a, in a sense, but, you know, we're coming from the viewpoint now. I mean, 2014 where we are, right? You can be a pagan. You can be wicked. And that's all. But I'm saying picture like 1702. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not practicing the Judeo-Christian thing, you're really kind of outside the paradigm of, of society. Unless it really hasn't changed that much. You know, but I'm, Right. But I, mean, well, I think it's changed in some ways. But, I mean, you know, you know, I think like if you're a Native American where you have a sort of uh, animistic religion, you know, where the tree has a spirit and the wind has, you know, that's that's complete paganism to a very 
pure, you know, right. vision Christian. You know what I mean? We we may have the freedom now to believe in those things, but there's still the prevailing sensibility is still Judeo-Christian. Yeah, and especially around here. Oh, man, <laughs> especially around here. But, I mean, imagine in, like, you know, 1683. I mean, if you're, like, doing a bonfire around a, a good-sized rock or something, you're dancing on the rock and, and, and you're, it's on And you're May already Day. mostly naked. Yeah, and maybe some topless women involved, natives or whatever. And then there's some, you know, you got a maypole up. I mean, this is like Thomas Morton type stuff. Sounds like a weekend at my place. That's oh, true. Okay. <laughs> The only the only difference is they had yet to have guns to shoot up constantly. (laughs) So well, I mean, I think that really that they were coming. They conflated the idea of they didn't understand a trickster god Mm -hmm. because in Judeo Christian system we don't really have a trickster. The trickster is the devil. If he's he's, there's not somebody who's kind of good and kind of bad, right? Mm -hmm. He's just that's someone bad being kind of good faking you out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like right. they wouldn't have a concept of a trickster figure, but other religions around the world in Africa—I mean, all around the world, really. Yeah, pretty had, much every other. I mean, think of ancient Greece. They had Hermes, or you know, the the Norse had Loki, or you know, all, the Native Americans had all kinds of trickster things going on, and, and so did Africa too, and all around the world, really. I mean, the trickster was recognized. That trickster consciousness was given a identity. It was anthropomorphic. You know what I'm saying? So. I just think that the Christian viewpoint, they would not understand that, so they would equate that with the devil. And so that's why the evil aspect has crept into what we tend to think of as, like, what's the answer to what this thing is called or what what it represents. But it's actually, because I I can tell you just linguistically, I think I'm correct in saying, if it meant place of evil spirits, that word would be something like magi manatuit. Magi, bad, manatu, spirit, et, place. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. All those place endings like at Cohasset, Massachusetts, you know. So the fact that it's Hop- Hockamock, I don't get the place out of that right off the bat. If know? I ever form my own street, too, that's going to become the name of it. Magic Minutes. So it's to keep people away from it. <laughs> but uh, we we got about five minutes here before we have to take a break for the news. Uh, but why do you feel like uh, there are trickster spirits so prevalent in other cultures, in other religions? Why is there a need to have that type of, of a personality in, in your uh, cultural experience? I think the reason that... That figure exists in mythology is because it's a very real force. And I almost think it might relate a little bit to the idea of synchronicity and Carl Jung's type stuff. I think that the, the trickster spirit is actually a real force in our world. And it's, it's real. And they, people call it different things. Like the ancient Greeks would call it Hermes. Or this people, would, they would call it Loki. You know what I mean? So they identified it and they named it. And it, it occupies... I mean, I think you can tell the significance, for example, Hermes, let's go back to him for a second. Hermes has more attributes than any Greek god, even Zeus, his father. He covers shepherds. He covers liars, thieves, commerce, um, uh, messengers. I mean, he has more aspects than any god. So I think the ancient people recognize this trickster consciousness in life. And that's why most religions that... And I'm not picking on the Judeo-Christian. I mean, I grew up a cat. I'm, you know, right, yeah. But I'm just saying, in terms of outside my world, outside the typical, you know, if you agree as a Christian or whatever, the trickster spirit's omnipresent. And it's almost every culture has one or two going, you know what I mean, in the pantheon. You know? and, it, and it seems like, it, it, as you're saying there, you know, it covers the dichotomy of human beings uh, and the own in, the, our own internal struggle of what we may feel, you know, of uh, how we can go in one direction one moment and one direction the next. And it's almost to say, you know, it's okay that you feel that way because even those who are supposedly above you are prone to that same thing as well. Exactly. And, you know, we still do. Well, think about this in our politics. What are what are all of our politics filled with? A bunch of tricksters. And this went back in history. Am I wrong? It, it makes no difference. If you're ruling a people, 
you rule mainly by a couple of different things, and one of the most common things is sleight of hand mentally. Well, and, and, and having, slight, having mul- multiple yeah. faces. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to have the face that fits the moment and the situation. We we actually still, um, not only politically, but, I mean, even, like, pop culture-wise, we still enjoy tricksters. I mean, I think a good case could be made that Felix the Cat, Bart Simpson, there's a lot of tricksters that you don't really think of, you know, I mean, and, and a lot of times they... You know, trickster figures are very liminal, you know, and sometimes it, they uh, almost uh, in, uh, encompass things like um, hermaphroditism, like, you know, when Bugs Bunny dresses like a girl. And, I mean, the, the trickster figure, um, it's there. It's even in, like, our pop culture to this day. Um, but, like, we don't have a figure, like I was saying, in Christianity that really fits that. I mean, it would just be the devil. You know? uh, although they do tend to give a little bit of... Um a little bit of leeway in terms of the angels. You know, the angels are, are uh, you do have this history of with the angelic figures of them kind of playing the humans a bit and not always having the best of intentions. I mean, sure, you have the people who, you know, draw the pictures of the angels with the halos and the wings and all that stuff. But when you get into the real meat and potatoes of angelic stories, a lot of times, sometimes they're they're leading humans down the wrong path uh, for their own because of their own jealousy or what have you. But that might be the closest, but it's still nothing like you see in some of these other religions and other cultures. I think the um, I think the uh, the jinn might be like that, you know, more like, right, like yeah. more obviously tricks are like some of them are good to you and some of them some have humanities they don't have humanity's best interest at heart. You know, there's a negative type thing going on there. So I mean yeah, I mean it seems to be very prevalent in a worldwide phenomena, and uh, I, I think it's there because it's actually – I don't understand it, but I think that it's actually a real, a real sort of uh, presence in the world, a real consciousness. Well, we will be talking more with Derek Gunn in the next hour. If you would like to call in at any point, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can tweet at Tweet us at Spooky SC. Matt, I, I don't have access to the chat room here. Do you have access to it over there at I all? I do, actually. And uh, so if there's any questions that pop yep. up, feel free to just jump in with them. Yep. You know, the same way you do on Spirit Connections now. I do. Yep. <laughs> Is it you that's manning the uh, chat room now? Yes, yes. I have the, uh, the, the giant whiteboard that I have the question on now. You, you know they did invent these things called teleprompters. All right, I don't, I don't want to make Warren uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we will talk more with Derek. We'll also talk about some very interesting topics uh, when it comes to the idea of these curiosities in New England, and we'll take your phone calls as well. Again, five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. Those are the numbers to call in and chime in. You have to do that, folks. Uh, we, you, I can't see your chat room questions, so you need to call in tonight and share your thoughts with us if you have a question for Derek, a question in general, even just an observation. Maybe you have a weird rock formation in your yard and you want to let us come check it out. We'll be back in just a moment with more here on Spooky South Coast. <laughs> With your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Kaufman. Welcome back. Our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here. 
along with the silent assassin Matt Casa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And I got to tell you guys, I'm sitting here monitoring my email, watching the tickets be sold for this upcoming Legend Trips event that we can't even say on the air yet. But just in pre-sale, we're already seeing these tickets fly off the shelves. But there's still six left to be had for the Mark Twain house, which... How often do you get to walk the halls of one of America's greatest writers in the house where he wrote some of his most famous works? I mean, Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, these characters were created in this house in Hartford, Connecticut, where we, we will be investigating on April 12th. And, of course, it won't be a spooky South Coast that night. Maybe we'll have something pre-recorded. We always say that, but we never yeah. do. And uh, then uh, <laughs> our next Legend Trips event isn't planned until July. That's the one that we have in pre-sale right now. But there's all kinds of things coming up on the in-between that we'll be part of. And what's interesting about Legend Trips now is we're being asked to put together events for other people's events. So when people are having conferences and conventions, they want us to come in and kind of put together ghost hunts associated with those events. So we're going to keep pretty busy. Keep your social calendars clear, Legend Trippers, because we're going to have so much stuff going on uh, over the next few months and probably throughout the rest of the year. Uh, another thing, too, that I want to mention is that uh, on we have other shows on Spooky TV in addition to this show. And I know that we don't always do a good job here promoting them yeah. on the air, Matt. But why don't you let people know what we have coming up on the schedule? Uh, well, we have a couple of uh, pre-recorded shows. that um, On Monday nights, we have Ghost of Near and the Chuckles and Laughs show. Uh, Wh- which, that's a show with clowns, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's... Weird clowns. Yeah. Like satanic clowns that wrestle. They do wrestle. They wrestle? On occasion, yeah. It's Each of, other or other people? or uh, I don't know. They, like they in a like, ring or like uncomfortably? Like, I think they just kind of attack each other here and there. Okay. And do drink, they play they, a lot of ICP? No, but they drink Narragansett. That's like their Fago? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Narragansett beer? And then they'll have like a, a punk rock band or whatever playing. Nice. It's, it's, it's a good time. And then um, on Wednesdays, it's the uh, Slaps 360 guys. Oh, yeah, Spare Connections on Tuesday. Yeah, Skip don't forget Right that. over Tuesday. That's our, our live show. Our other flagship yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then Thursdays is uh, Paranormal uh, After Party. That's at 8 o'clock with uh, Flip Searles and uh, the Generic Black Shirt Paranormal Group. And us. Right, lots. Yeah. And then there's, there's a couple of the shows coming down the pipeline, I suppose, but uh, nothing, nice. nothing solid yet. And, uh, of course, those who listen to us here on Spooky South Coast and on Spooky TV, uh, don't forget, too, that we are also broadcast Thursday nights on the Dark Matter Radio Network online. So you can check us out on Art Bell's very own Dark Matter Radio Network. So this show will be replayed uh, coming up on Thursday night from 10 to midnight on the Dark Matter Radio Network online. So we are very proud to be part of that family. And uh, there, was, there was something else that I wanted to mention, too, and I don't want to let it slip my Ah. Right. Next week's show. Mm. Uh, next week, we're going to have the ladies of Paranormal Expeditions here with us, Tina Storer and Rachel Hoffman, to talk about their new venture, True Crime Paranormal. And we'll also have, joining us as a special co-host that night, Stephanie Burke. So she'll be here as well. Uh, we'll have a good time. We'll have lots of people here in the studio. It's going to be a real challenge for whoever's directing Spooky TV, Matt Costa. Yep. So uh, maybe we are got to pick up some extra webcams or something over the week. So. We'll have a lot of people in here. So uh, we are talking tonight with Derek Gunn about some New England curiosities and some of the alternative history to the area that you might not have heard. And like I said earlier, I mean, I'm not bragging here, but we are an internationally downloaded program. People listen to the show all over the world. And you would think that when we talk about something that happens in this region, it would 
kind of lose the interest of people in Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan. But instead, these are the shows that people love. They love learning about what goes on here in this area. And for some reason, it's become uh, kind of, uh, you know, everybody's kind of adopted paranormal home. Now, everybody looks, looks at all the stories that come out of the Bridgewater Triangle, out of New England in general, uh, some of the, the weird maritime history that we have, all these stories. And uh, so that's why we are continuously presenting this information to you guys uh, over the course of the many years that we've been doing this program. And it's funny now, Derek, this is your second appearance on the show. And even after you know four hours of talking, we'll never have covered uh, everything that we could possibly discuss uh, because it just seems like as you peel back the layers, you just find more and more. Uh, has this research kind of been something that ha- has been growing exponentially for you over the years as well? Do you find like as each year goes by, you're digging more and more into these stories? Absolutely. I mean, it, I used to joke with people say it never ends. You know, someone say, well, when the hell are you putting that book out? You know, and and there has to be some closure here. I mean, you know, it's been a, it's been a long haul. I've been researching this thing for a long time, and the interest of being sort of comprehensive. But just the other, just like a year ago, someone brought me to this amazing site in Middleborough, a perched boulder, uh, a boulder on a hillside with uh, three pegstones that were the, the stone on top was the pegstones beneath that were completely made into it. I thought he was going to bring me to an old cellar hole or something because sometimes people do that when they know I like rock formations and things. They bring me to something that, you know, it is interesting for what it is, but it's not quite what I'm looking for, if right. you know what I mean. And this guy, a friend of mine, said, oh, I got this thing on my property, and he didn't tell me what it was. He kept saying, let's just go, you know, I'll just just let go, just go with me, bear so with me. it was me. a dolman? It was like a dolman. It was like a, a perched boulder, or, you know, some people would definitely call it a dolman. Um, and uh, it's an it's sort of an unknown one. You know, that a lot, no, no one's really researched it. It's just on this guy's property off the side of the road, and uh, it's in the woods a little bit. It's near some power lines, and um, and he it, it's kind of neat because he's given me like carte blanche to kind of look at it because it's on his property. You know what I mean? So maybe you know I can do like a dig on it per se, but I like to maybe clear away some of the trees that are kind of all over it and just kind of get some good pictures of it and and maybe get the right person to look at it. You know, who has um who has the the, the paper behind his name or something? You know? Yeah, it might be kind of hard though to to do something like that. Uh, and you've been doing it for a long time. But it must be hard to to find these locations. Then you got to figure out who owns the land oh, that yeah. they're on. Oh, that's happened to me. Um. My a site that's very near and dear to my heart, and if you if you look on my webpage, Amazing Massachusetts, you'll see on the the bio page of my I'm standing next to the Standing Stone that's in Marshville. It's one mile downstreet from where I grew up, in an area called Devil's Hollow, again the bedeviled place name thing, Lauren Coleman thing. But um, yeah, uh, for years I thought a guy at the end of this dirt road owned it, and he thought he owned it. And again, he gave me carte blanche. He said, Derek, I'd be out here studying it with you, but I just don't have the time. And he thought it was awesome because he has. Again, like, you know, Celtic and Nordic ancestry, you know, and uh, full red beard and stuff. And uh, we found out, no, it's not on his property at all. It's the next parcel of land over. Yeah. And the lady lives in, like, New Hampshire, and she's not that friendly to people, <laughs> you know. And so um, here I am, maybe for a couple of years, you know, looking at this thing, taking pictures, showing other, showing the Marshall Historical, uh, Marshall Historical Commission, the site. I brought people from NERA, uh, New England Antiquities Research Association. I'm, I'm traipsing people thinking I have total permission to, to be there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the end of the world. It's right off of some, again, some power lines uh, that cut through that part of uh, Green Harbor. And, um, I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to be, you know, trespassing, but I probably was indirectly and not on purpose. But. Is there any kind of precedent if uh, one of these historic locations are found on somebody's private property? Is there any kind of precedent of being able to take it over under eminent domain to say that, you know, this is something that needs to be made available to the public? You know, I don't know. And uh, if you go to the town hall in Marshfield, the 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 um, 
all the papers, all the you know, show paper roads going right through the site. I mean, this paper in the the roads on the plans do not match what is physically there right now mm-hmm. at all. And they have done some every about five or ten years. They look at that area to develop more. But this standing stone site that I found there is right next to some power lines. So I don't think a house would go right on it, but that doesn't mean like a road wouldn't go across it either. Sure. You know, so it's it's in a little bit of a precarious zone. And uh, I used to go and talk to the town planner and stuff every once in a while, and it seems like things have chilled out there because I believe what it is is if they put any more homes in that area, they would have to do improvements like lights and sidewalks. And so there's a monetary thing that's kind of keeping it on the, you know, back burner from somebody real looking at that area right now. But I do, you know, to answer your question, yes, I don't know. I don't Your know. station for the South. I don't know if there's a precedent for saving things like that. Um, I did think when it was going to be developed, maybe like that the Plymouth Plantation would come down and take the Standing Stone and put it in the Hawk, uh, Hobbit Mock's uh, campsite in the back with the Native Americans there or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, if the power lines are in that close of proximity, chances are it's owned by the utility company because they own property within so many hundreds of feet from their power lines and stuff like that for liability purposes. So maybe it's maybe it's just within the lines and probably is. Right. Yeah, that would be good, you know, because then they don't have a developer or anything. But it is a five-foot standing stone in a roughly 300-foot stone row. I hesitate to call it a wall because it's not like your typical Yankee wall around here with, you know, stones you and I could move. Mm-hmm. It's more like a path of boulders with a five-foot standing stone. And when you – it describes sort of an L. It goes 300 feet and then 75 feet the other way. And then at the end is this beautiful diamond-shaped stone that's cut but not with metal tools. I got a question. Have you aligned it with any of the solstices and or equinoxes, both lunar as well as solar? Not lunar, but when Jim Maver, James Maver, who wrote Manitou, uh, which is a great book, I recommend it to your to your listeners. Uh, Byron Dixon, James Maver, uh, Manitou. I think he came out around eighty nine. I got Jim Maver. This was a real coup getting this guy out because he was older at the time. He came up from Woods Hole. He saw the site. He was very excited about it, and he did have some kind of device to measure the. You know, the declination of it. But he, yeah. he said to me that he thought it was a, um, I believe he thought it was a spring sunrise alignment, like a March 20th, like a vernal equinox yeah. alignment. Yes. It's nice. roughly an east-west wall, too. It's, when you go on Google Maps, you look at it. It's very, very east-west. It's very, so I, his, I shouldn't say wall, wall stone row. Uh, in, in discussing the idea, too, of development around some of these sites, I've got to ask you, we've been talking quite a bit here, and I talk quite a bit on my Saturday morning program about the expansion known as South Coast Rail, where they're going to be starting to bring uh, the MBTA commuter lines uh, down to this neck of the woods. And the plan for that calls for going right through the Huckamock Swamp and right through all of that land. And I know that you've spent a lot of time out there. I mean, what kind of damage could we be doing not only to the, the environmental impact but just the historical impact uh, by running train service through the middle of the Hockamock Swamp? Um, I mean, I'm not sure the specifics are ready to be 100% honest with you, but I imagine that would change the whole, you know, uh, you're disrupting the whole uh, ecology of the place and, and, and changing. If you put, like, a rail line and a raised bed and stuff, it would change how things There's, flow. And I ride through that every day. It's, it's the um, Lakeville line that goes up to South Station. It goes right through the... No, no, no. This this new line is going to completely bisect it, and it's going to pretty much change the whole topography of the area, and part of the plan involves uh, eventual development of the land around the swamp, too. So it would basically be taken over. I think the plan actually called for the insertion of a stop. Uh, in that neck of the woods, too. So that could cause a lot of issues. I'm wondering about how many of these historical sites are out there, you know, these standing stones and other things like that that we haven't even found yet. Oh, yeah. 
that are going to be threatened by I, this type of uh, expansion. I can give you a good example of that that was, was kind of tragic. I found out about a chamber, you know, stone cave, man-made stone cave, a root cellar, if you want to call it, in Walpole. Now, that thing had been there for, like, a long time, right? So I'm talking to this guy who was a historian out in that area, and he told me that there were several chambers in Walpole. They might not be ancient, but there were these kind of uh, things there. And I went one day. This was back in the, I think, late 90s. And they had demolished it the day before I got there. Ooh. Can you imagine that? Like, there was a pile of rocks in this person's yard. It was like, oh, the chamber used to be, like, right there. And it was there for probably hundreds of years, maybe longer if it was one of these ancient ones that I'm looking for. And it was literally I'd gone, like, a day or two late, like, if I'd just been there, like, the week oh, before. That reminds me of the time Matt went to the mall to see Mr. T. <laughs> uh, one of the... Uh, one of the he, laughed, uh, he laughed knowingly there. Uh, when... when you do have these, uh, you know, these types of locations that we want to preserve. Uh, the, often, modern progress will stand in the way of that, and uh, not everybody has the same appreciation for some of these locations. And we had an issue where we live in Wareham. They built this new mall, the Wareham Crossing, uh, where they put in well, you know, half the anchor stores they put in there have already moved on. Uh, but uh, they they built this, you know, open air mall type plaza, and it's on the site that used to be. Uh, there used to be an NSTAR yeah. uh, building there, uh, an NSTAR hub. But around that, there was a lot of undeveloped land that had just sat empty forever. And when they were moving this in, they found an old colonial cemetery. And they actually had to move that as part of the development. But there was also Native American sites that they didn't show the same respect to. that They just kind of plowed through. And that's the, the problem with this is, you know, we don't have we don't have the same record of that that we do of these other it's easy for somebody in the historical society to come up and say, well, here's who's buried here. We don't have that same type of uh, reverence for the Native American sites, so therefore they fall by the wayside. That absolutely happened with me. I'm sorry, Matt. I, I was going to say that we're, the, the mall he's talking about, they also had an, a Native American fishing weir. You know what that is? They had one of those in that site because I used to work right across the street. And mm-hmm. That was one of the areas we'd go walking around and. You know what a fishing weir is, obviously. Yeah, it's a. It's well, for a, those who don't know, including okay, me. okay, uh, a fishing weir is where they divert part of a river and make like a little cul-de-sac, and what they do is they move stones in and out of the water to allow the flow to come in. The fish follow into the into the cul-de-sac, and then they lower the stone back down, and then they would you know fish in a barrel, so to speak. And they, there was also this very ancient fish where um, made with wooden stakes. Sometimes they do it yeah, with stone. They, yeah. they did it with wooden stakes up where, um, remember where, uh, is it FAO Schwartz used to be up in Boston there with the teddy bear was and all that? Yeah. And, uh, about 30 feet down because, you know, Boston's been filled in yeah. so much. But when they were digging down, they found um, stakes that were, I mean, they copied, this thing was ancient, like archaic time period. Like it was really ancient. So they uh, sometimes would make this cul-de-sac or like a V in the water with stakes and, and you and then you... You know, you've got the fish, like you said. They all kind of they used to do like uh, with deer and stuff too. Yeah, you know, but um, good plan. No, it's it's efficient. But I to go back to what you were saying for a sec. Um, I came across that the Standing Stone site I found when I brought the Marshfield Historical Commission down there. Um, these three ladies um, who know everything about Marshfield, they really do. They're really very very good. And our history book they wrote in 1990 was excellent. That's where I found out it was called Devil's Hall. Actually, was through them. Um, but they didn't, like you said, they didn't know, they didn't have a paradigm to put that standing stone site in. This wasn't a house from 
that you know Josiah Thomas lived in or something. You know what I mean? Right. Like, they, they had no paradigm for that thing, and they said, "Well, we're going to try to help you find out about it." And they had no information for me. They did because it's just a stone wall. And uh, the one thing I thought was kind of funny was here. I think this standing stone site might be significant. And right over by the power lines, there were these um, you know maybe four by four depressions where archaeologists had actually been before years before I got there, and they were doing test pits. And I'm going, geez, well, you know, here's this great. I think it's kind of an enigma, this Standing Stone site. And and here were these actual people involved in this endeavor, and they, they would never think to look at that as it's just an, an old wall. It's a boundary right. marker. So, you know what I mean? And they didn't have the same eyes, maybe. Right. You know, if because I'm into this, and they're not. So if there know. isn't that point of reference for them, then to them, it's, you know, it's kind of like uh, when you when you – when you go to the same place every day, you know, like I go, I go to my house every day, and there's times that I walk in and I may notice something that's changed, it's different. But there's other times that I don't notice because I'm just, I'm already seeing it the way that I'm used to seeing it when I walk in the door. I'm not really paying attention. You know, sometimes something will catch your eye and you'll be like, "Wait, that doesn't belong." But then other times you're just so oblivious to what goes on. And I think that's what happens is a lot of people around here end up with those blinders uh, because it doesn't fit into what their vision is of their town's history. Exactly. And, I mean, we're, we're always taught around here, and this is kind of, I think, the thrust of that book, Manitou, I was telling you, Native Americans did not build in stone. You know, okay, well, the ones in Mexico and down there did in, in stone, but around here they didn't build in stone. Right? No. No, but that's what we're taught. And, and the book Manitou saying, uh, if I can sort of summarize the, the book, uh, summarize the book, um, I think what Maven Dix was saying is that there are stone rows, and, and you know, back to Kurt Hoffman and stuff when he wrote that book about the prehistory of Middleborough, at the fly, flag swamp rock shelter, there was a, an overhang, a rock shelter, Native American, and there was a stone row above the rock shelter that had the action of preventing snow from, you know, dripping, melting, and the water going into stopped the... Stopped ice dams. They stopped the yeah. water from going down into the thing, uh, into their living quarters. And that construction was dated as being 3,000 years old. Based on, I think, artifactual or charcoal or whatever they, mm -hmm. but it was shown by supposedly, like you know, archaeologists. So even in a book like uh, Kurt Hoffman's History of uh, of, of Westboro, Mass, um, here you have an actual academic saying there's a three thousand year old stone construction, Native American construction. So and like you said, fish weirs. I mean, or hearths. I mean, they did build in stone. Whether they did up to the chamber level, now that's debatable. But in Manitou. Uh, Byron Dixon, Jim Maver say they did. They probably built chambers, and on the second to last page, they mentioned the Irish Culdy monks. That maybe they came over here and collaborated. They both had shamanistic religions. They would have related in a lot of ways. The chiefs wear feathers. I mean, there's a lot of commonality actually between some of the Celtic practices and Native American practices. There really are, and even linguistically, maybe there is too. Um, there might be a few connections that could show that. Um, so he, you know, that may be due to Inuit. Because Something a lot in of between, yeah. well, the Inuits ring the uh, Arctic Circle, and a lot of them would come down southerly, uh, to, you know, following seal populations and whale populations and stuff like that. So, the the wearing of the feathers and stuff like that may be the comp because if you look at the Inuit, they they were very very uh, seafaring because that's how they got around in the sealskin uh, canoes and stuff like that. And they would look for, you know, objects and 
like feathers and other things like that to to work and trade with to make for their arrows and, and stuff like that. So Head, why would they not? Addresses. Yeah. The uh, the other thing when I mentioned linguistic connection, um, and and you know some people probably find this a stretch, but. You know, when you find an inscribed stone, someone can say, well, that's a hoax or that's a modern, you know, whatever. Or it's a, um, it was traded through, you know, hands in between, say, Ireland and here. You know, that's the famous story with the Viking penny up in Maine that it traded hands with the Indians that, you know, there were no Vikings in Maine. The Viking penny's there in a shell midden, but it traded through Native American hands. I mean, maybe it did. Maybe that is a real answer. I mean, who knows? But the thing is I like is some of the linguistic evidence. For example, uh, as I understand it, say Sagamore, okay, Native American word. Now it's a place name even though it's not, not an et word, but Sagamore, down in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sagamore means a kind of lesser chief, right? A sage from a Sagamore. Right. Now, in ancient Gaelic, as I understand it, Sagatmore would mean, like, big wise man. Sagat would be cognate with our word sage, mm-hmm. and more means bigger, you know, more. Wow. So Sagatmore in ancient Gaelic sounds an awful lot like Sagamore. Yeah. And... Um, there are other um, connections that actually the kind of controversial Barry Fell, uh, the author of America BC, that he made some connections between Nordic and Celtic uh, words and uh, place names around New England or words for things around New England. Uh, Merrimack, for example, he thought had a connection to Gaelic. Um, uh, the Mystic River I saw in a book one time, which is a Native American word, allegedly uh, a purely Native American word, um, might have a Norse connection. Uh, and um, I'm trying to think of a few others, but... Um, Every once in a while, you get these these uh, linguistic clues that may indicate that there was some kind of contact, that there was a little bit of exchange of ideas and culture. Well, it had to have been a little bit. It had to have been more than just a little bit for them to have retained uh, these identities. I mean, there had to have been some sort of working relationship there. I mean, uh, if you had just come in and used a word uh, with one of these cultures that were here at the time, one of the native cultures, it would take a lot for that word to stick. And it would take a lot for them to to make that association of what you meant, and then to kind of use the same reference point. Um, so, I mean, I would I would think there'd have to be something pretty significant going on, which I've always felt that there had to have been something uh, significant going on because there's too many clues and there's too much of a story behind the story. You know, I watched a great special, uh, America Before Columbus, that was on, I think it was Discovery Channel, and I'm watching it. And they're kind of explaining how the people lived, and I'm watching a lot of it. And I'm thinking to myself. But there seems to have been some sort of influence. And the paranormal guy in me is, like, wondering about, you know, ancient aliens and that type of stuff. But then your mind just starts to make those connections of, well, maybe there was a lot more interaction between the Europeans and the natives than we realize now. And uh, because it wasn't written down and neither side really discussed it, uh, that we have to look, again, as you do, we have to look at the, the, you know, we have to look at the forest for the trees and be able to make those connections ourselves. You know, for some reason, guys, and, uh, and if you look into this, you can, you can see it for yourself, really. Uh, the mainstream people do not seem to have a problem with people visiting on the other side. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like Chinese visitation to California, say, or something, or, 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 you know, Asian connections to like what's now like Mexico or something. You know what I mean? That doesn't seem to be a big, shocking thing it's like no no these people like they got in boats and they did things but over here there's this such this mindset i think it's starting to crack but it's been there for so long it's amazing to me it's just it's it it's like it's like a wall you know they just don't most people just don't want to hear it i mean i don't mean like regular people i'm talking more like people 
in academia. Yeah, the academics. They they, they typically don't want to hear that because it's just like because of the hoaxes and because of the misinterpretations and frauds and and in in, in, uh, charges of racism almost like oh the Indians couldn't have built these mounds because you know I don't I don't get into any of that I'm not I'm not denigrating Native American I I love Native American culture a lot you know but but if there seems to be smoke in this I mean it seems to be that people were here. Let's go for the truth too. Were there, were there people here? It doesn't take anything but, away from anybody. It's just it, well, also too part of, of it. You, know? you mentioned the racism angle, and part of it is um, a belittlement, whether intentional or not, of the native people. You know, we still have that same mindset of them just being mindless savages, and they can't be this advanced technological society because we like to feel like we brought them those advances in technology. But if the people who built the pyramids, allegedly, well acceptedly are the ones that built the pyramids well then i would say that anybody can do anything you know uh, and, and to me it, to look at some of the things that are uh, being said couldn't be done by the natives um i just I, I can't i can't say definitively like other people have like no there's no way that could be we don't know enough about that culture we've suppressed that culture so much that we no longer know what was possible and what wasn't from exactly and from from what it seems, if you and again, let's go back to Mansfield for a second. I mean, I learned from that book that the Native Americans um, seem to have practiced very advanced land management techniques, and that they knew about the burning over the land for the underbrush and stuff. They they diverted rivers and swamps. They 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 are actually much more advanced than the than us, than we people when we came over. I mean, you know. You think of like a Native American, like if you understood found, the need of fertilization. Fertile, I mean, like again, exactly. Uh, how about if you find a store of something like an animal that's made a little store of something for the winter? You know, your typical white guy back then, I think, is going to grab like 100 percent of what he just found. But the Native Americans knew like grab like 80 percent and give him 20 percent. So when that thing comes to in the spring, he still can live. You know what I mean? So he'll do right. it again. Right. They didn't like. They had very advanced understanding of ecology and. And and so to think of them as backwards, um, you know, some people, if they think that way, they really ought to look into it. You know, it's, it's, that's absolutely, you know, that's backwards. Looking at it anthropologically, you, anthropologically, you can kind of understand where the Europeans were coming from. They come from a conquering culture where they were constantly at war between countries and, and between peoples. And, you know, one had to rule the other. And, and they were all ruled, essentially, uh, because there were so many kingdoms throughout Europe and everything. So everybody was kind of under somebody else's thumb uh, that they had that conquering mentality when they came over here. And what they were meeting here uh, was a completely different type of a setup. Oh, you're, you couldn't be more wrong. No, no, that's... I'm, I really feel like the difference being... Oh, the, you're feeling maybe that, but the, believe it or not, between the Native American cultures, there there was lots of wars as well as enslavement. Right, well, right. One thing he could relate to is, like, let's say the Native Americans didn't have the same idea of, like, land control. Like, right. Like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they, they, if you come over, you conquer, you own this, where the Natives well, would, this is yeah. my zone, this is your zone, we might fight, but, you know. Yeah. They had, there was all the different wars between the different tribes and yeah. uh, everything, you know, you can look at this, the history of the Iroquois and all the uh, battles that they had and, and the different uh, tribes that we had in this area. But with that, it was... It wasn't about land. It, it was, was people versus people. people. Right. And that is a, a very uh, social type of warfare right. as opposed to this conquering mentality right. Right. that you had coming from the Europeans where, you know, if, if there was a conflict between... It, it wasn't a matter of... Uh, you know, you're where I want to be, so I'm just going to fight you. There was always more to it to the natives than that. With the Europeans, it was more like, no, no, we're here now, so this is ours, so you need to get out. It was Europeans, it was about resources. With the natives, it was about pride. 
I think that's probably probably fair. Although I'm sure that there were some, you know, you've got the resources that I'd like to have too. But mainly pride, you know. And I think part of that too is uh, with with the natives, it was different coming from their spiritual background because that would put an intrinsic respect into them that maybe didn't exist because a lot of those warring factions that came from Europe had to do with religious differences. So you didn't believe the same thing that I believe necessarily. It was a little tiny difference from one to the one to the other, but it's enough for you not to be my brother anymore. Whereas with the natives, they still had kind of the same overarching spiritual belief, and yeah. that would kind of bind them together. You're talking like a, you know, Protestants and Catholics killing each other. I mean, you're pretty close. If you're a Protestant and you're Catholic, you're both Christians. Let's get it together, people. You know right. what I'm saying? So, Right, yeah. the little minute difference. I, I love hearing, uh, you know, the different difference. Well, I'm Lutheran, I'm Baptist, yeah, yeah. whatever, whatever. I know people who don't believe in any of that stuff. So to to them, you know, it's 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 Go a huge. Go The point, <laughs> point is moot if you don't care about and, it. And speaking of of some of the natives and some of their beliefs, uh, I know that um, that you've done a lot. Of, we 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 can't talk about Wampanoags and and put it out there to the world populace as we do with our podcast and not bring up the subject of puckwudgies. They always seem to come up whenever we discuss. Or we're talking about tricksters. We're talking about the Native Americans. Yeah. We've got to discuss the puckwudgies, and it's one of those things that. Uh, again, you know, uh, a lot of other cultures don't have that frame of reference. So we're only starting to really get kind of an accepted idea of how the Pukwudgie was represented, represented to the Native people. And I know that you've done a lot of research in that area. Yeah, I could actually, you know, to go back to the name game stuff and the linguistics and stuff, it's it's really interesting to me. I wonder if anybody's made this connection. I don't know if I independently came up with this or I've read this somewhere and it went to my subconscious and I'm regurgitating it right now. But you wondered about, like, Pukwudgie as a word even. Okay, um, in you know Shakespeare, for example, and mm-hmm. you have Puck, a European figure. You know what I mean? He was a type of uh, fairy, right? You have in Celtic mythology the Puka. So this P vowel K type word seems to be, you know, both sides of the water here, with, um, with the same associated intrinsic with meaning. Little elementals or spiritual, you know, little small uh, diminutive little uh, beings, you know, fairies and. Which is interesting because the puka is a shapeshifter. He can be large. He can be small. He can be a giant rabbit, or he can be other kinds of form. You know what I mean? So he's a shapeshifter, like a trickster, you know, a type of trickster. And um, like I said, I don't know if that's something that came to me, or I just I read that somewhere. And you know, sometimes you don't know where you get stuff after a while when you, right. you oh, know, yeah. read a lot, and, and then you think you thought it up. You're just a sponge and, absorbing yeah, everything. And yeah. You think you came up with it, and then say, you know, somebody you bump into says, "I told you that ten years ago, dude." Occasion, <laughs> but. Um, no, I wondered. Uh, I was I was really interested in the account. Uh, have you guys read the book, The Narrow Land? Have not. That is a book that um, is a folk chronicles of Cape Cod, and she mentions um, Elizabeth um, Renyard, I believe it is, um, mentions her her version that she got from a Native American source down in Cape Cod of of the Pukwudgies and uh, and his and the in the battles between Moshop and and Pukwudgies, you know, and um, and they sound really uh, like little mischievous, really like. They give little. They have a lot of magic, a lot of uh, you know, a Manitou spirit, and uh, that even like the weakest one is stronger than the, the man's shaman. You know, like they they have a lot of uh, abilities and can do things because they're battling with Moshop, who's a giant. You know, sort of more of a culture god, and um, she get she gets into some funny things. One of the things I've never heard mentioned really, I don't think anywhere else. I might be wrong. Um, is that uh, besides being little troll like things, that they sometimes can take the form of bears or um, you know, and when someone shoots them, they kind of pull the arrow out of their rump oh, wow. or something and keep running. And uh, um, that they can sometimes be almost like a leaf man, like a kind of. Um, have you guys heard accounts like that of a? Of no. Characters? Okay. This book mentions almost like if you think of the Green Man in European type, you know, the Green Man, uh, kind of a foliage type 
persona, you know? I mean, I've heard of them being able to, to shift, but yeah. not into these um, these kind of classical type figures. Normally, uh, one of the stories, one of the first Pukwudgie stories that I ever heard, and this comes from years and years ago from the Middleborough Lakeville area. And I would even say that this probably predates, and I, I'd have to check the dates with Chris, but I'd say this probably predates Chris putting anything up on his site about the Pukwudgies, which is really when it started to, to kind of hit the mainstream. Uh, and there was just a, a, a story that all the kids in the town tell about this one house where there's these little bearded, like small troll-type figures that are seen on this property. And I didn't make the connection until later on that what they're talking about is they're talking about puckwudgies, uh, that it's just kind of a, a, a modernized version of it. But they would say that if you went to this house and you saw one of them, you know, bad luck would happen to you. And, and they would play tricks on you and they would try to invite you into the onto the property. And you, you when you got there, you'd be under their spell. And these are stories that I heard from kids that I knew that went to school there. And, and it's just, you know, just the kind of crap that kids talk amongst themselves. But it was based in something else. So... I mean, is that, is that a, in Middlebury, you said, or a Lake uh, It was in Lakeville, Lakeville, where I actually heard it. Now, I'll see if I can find out some more of the details about it. But uh, there's a lot of things that went around uh, that area, because I had family that lived there, and I found out things from that area that play into a lot of this research that was probably being put out there before this research was really put out there. So before we were reading Chris Pittman's sites and Chris Balzano's sites, so... Again, I mean, it's a, it's a nice link because yeah. you heard it beforehand, before you even knew from the other sources. And you know, Chris mentions. I I wonder if Chris Balzano has probably read the Narrow Land because he always mentions the uh, Taipei Wonkas, the the lights along the way that the mm-hmm. that the and that's mentioned in that book. Yeah, Let's I think see. he actually referenced it in the in, in the, the article that he wrote that everybody steals from him. Yeah, <laughs> and he mentioned it in the movie too. I think. You yeah, know? and. Uh, those lights, I mean, if you think about that, that is just such classic. That is a very European motif. Or maybe it's just maybe it's just a trickster thing. It's a worldwide thing. Again, human consciousness type, archetype type thing, you know. But uh, to have these little diminutive beings who, you know, could be good to you or could be bad to you. And uh, and they um, they are associated with uh, anomalous uh, lights in the swamps and things like that, you know. Which sometimes those lights are supposedly have Funny, a, a consciousness to a lot to like them. abductions. Is it having the lights and stuff? Yeah. Think about well, it. the little beings and the lights and being tricked and having all these things done to you. You know where I stand on that. We we've debated this. I never made that. That's funny. I never. We've that we've debated this numerous times, uh, both on the air and off. Yeah. Where I've I've totally become of the mindset that um, UFO encounters, UFO sightings, abductions, all of this stuff is just our modern boogeyman. The same way you that you said the last one, the modern fairies. It, that's what they are. They're the modern fairies. And I had somebody actually email me this week and ask me, you know, what I thought about UFOs because this person is terrified of UFOs and the idea of an alien visitation. And I said, you know, today's sighting of Wareham yesterday. Of of a craft? Yep, hanging over 495. String of five lights, V formation as it was coming down the roadway. It flipped up on its side and took off. What time of day was that? Uh, 6 o'clock in the evening. Witnessed by Lisa Zarenberg. Wow. Anybody get any video of it yet? That we know uh, of? I'm in the process of checking. I'm, say, I'm sure somebody must have. Uh, today's day and age with you know the cameras and the phones. I, I did see the space station the other day, too, by the way, which was... I'd never seen. If I didn't know what, you're looking what I was looking at, I might have questioned what I was seeing too. You, you do almost like a um, your, your interpretation is almost like a Carl Jung type thing in a way. You do, you're seeing uh, archetypes. Yes, modern phenomena in a mythological and not meaning mythological like it's fake. Mythological in the real sense of mythological right. way. 
Yeah, and, yeah. and to me, that's what all of the stuff that we're studying is. It's all just modern mythology. And I, I think of myself probably more as a mythologist than I do a paranormal investigator these days. That's a great take. You know, and, you know, and I've, always call, I've always referred to Chris Balzano as an analytical folklorist. You know, somebody who takes what we see in today's era and, and puts it into, you know, folklore perspective. And that's the way that I've kind of gotten into it. This this poor woman who was messaging me was terrified because she watched your episode of Monsters <laughs> and Mysteries in America. And she's like, if Moniz has been abducted by aliens, then anybody can be abducted by aliens. And I said, listen, this is just my theory. I said, you can talk to Moniz about it if you want. Uh, and, and other people who have actually undergone these experiences. But my theory and my belief is that they're just our modern boogeyman, our modern fairies, and that UFO sightings are a uh, technologically advanced version of spook lights, will-o'-the-wisp, you know, all these things that we see, St. Elmo's fire, all these things that happen that we have previously attributed to being something else. You know, now we're seeing them as UFOs because it's our perspective that has changed the way that they appear to us. Okay, then riddle me this, Batman. Why do videos and cameras show it then? They they have no, no predisposition. I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm just saying that what they are is what was previously believed to be that. I'm not saying that there isn't something there. Okay. I'm okay, just saying that it's you're... not a different type of entity or consciousness. Okay, the way it was saying, the people talk about, you know, the, the mythology, meaning that it's made up or, you know... Um, no, no, no. Meant- you can have a mythology about something that's not made up. I mean, you know, there's... A mythology is just the... Uh, what you're defining as mythology. Okay. It, well, to me, and I think a lot of people might might have the same focus on mythology that you do, but to me, a mythology is just the story that springs up around anything. So okay. it could be based in fact, but it could just be a tall tale that builds up around that fact uh, to, to try to get the point across. It's a story where all of the uh, de- uh, factual details have been blurred. It's like a fable. Yeah. You know, the, the important yeah. part is the lesson at the end. It doesn't really matter how we get to it. Yeah. Um, sorry, Derek. I'm no, that's you okay. Off. No, that's, that's <laughs> fine. But I mean, if that's the case, though, I mean, if... And I'm not belittling the experiences that people have. Like I said, I think that there's there's something legitimate happening. It's just the person who is abducted by uh, aliens in today's world is the person that would have, you know, disappeared down the rabbit hole led by fairies, and right. you know, in the 1700s, for example. Right. And that we're just—it's a different way that it's presented to us, and it has to be presented to us in a way that is uh, culturally and socially relevant to our times. And all, relevant, uh, and also has to be something that um, would be scary to us. Yeah. You know, for a fairy to show up and fly around our head, we'd be like, you know, what, what the hell is this? And we would tr- immediately try to take a cell phone picture of it, uh, maybe kill it, you know, dissect it, categorize it, ship it off to the university, what have you. So our minds have already kind of gone over analytical for what that could be. So now we're being presented something that we can't quite fathom and quite understand in a different way. So you guys are all looking at you know, me like I'm weird. I would, I'm wondering if, like, uh, this almost goes back to John Keel a little bit, the kind of idea, like, you know, your Roman legions might have seen a shield in the sky. Uh, in 1898, and you're in Texas, you'd see a mystery airship. Uh, in 1958, right. you'd see a flying saucer. Um, and all these things, I mean, and th- and it's almost like the, the sometimes the craft almost reflect the times a little bit. Is that what that's, that's one of the first things that got me... Of that mindset was those airship sightings, uh, you know, and we're talking pre 
dirigibles. But when they had those airship sightings, that was kind of what would be the closest they could fathom. And now as we've been able to build modern aircraft, well, what's the next step for us? These superior craft that these ships supposedly have. And again, I, I think that there's something there. I'm not saying that it's anything anybody's imagining. It's just how it's being presented to us. Some, some sort of other intelligence is making these things available to us. Okay. Uh, I know why you're going with what you're saying because you're talking about seeing the shields and then seeing the airships and stuff like that. There are, because I've been studying UFOs for many, many decades now, there are recordings of these other types of craft that are in record, written down as well as drawn. The stories of airships and shields are only the stuff that gets reported because those were the only things that they could describe of that day. They were still, during the uh, siege of Alexander, they, they saw the blazing shields in the sky. But there were other civilizations nearby that were also seeing these large cigar-shaped craft that they were recording. So, okay, but but they were talking about the shields because, well, I know what the shield looks like. I can describe that. This other thing, I have no idea what to use for this, so I ignore it. Again, it's being put into your frame of reference. Right. And, and you're saying that the line could be, is it how it appears to you or is it how your mind processes it? And and I I think that... The mind processing it is a big part of how it how it is. So maybe to some people, yes, it is a shield. You're, you know, the same thing seen by the same person could be a cigar-shaped craft to one person, could be a home plate-shaped craft like we see in the Bridgewater Triangle document. You know, it, it's the, the, the basis of it, the origin of it is probably still the same point, but how it's being presented and how it's being processed is different. You can process something differently than I can. Right. We you can know. both see the same car accident and say that, you know, it was this person, and you'd say it was the other person who was up. But, I mean, even just looking at UFO craft, all right, you have a much more vast knowledge of aircraft and of aircraft design than I ever could have. It's something that I've never studied. Flown a few. And I don't know anything about them. I, I couldn't tell you an F-14 from, a, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't even know anything beyond an F-14. That's just sure. But I can't tell one from another. It's never something that uh, I've been able to do. You have studied them. So for, them. Yes. for me, you know, any type of, of craft could be uh, advanced to my knowledge. But to you, you would have to go beyond what you know. And, and you have a pretty good working knowledge of what type of aircraft are out there that at least yes. you know, the public's been made aware of. So you, and a few that the public hasn't, yeah. So yours has to be beyond that scope of knowledge. So therefore, I might see something that just looks like a bunch of lights in the sky, but you have to see something that comes across completely different. And again, I'm not saying that we didn't. there wasn't something for us to see. It's just how we each processed what we saw. All right, you we're know, getting off topic. You know, uh, no, I don't think so at all. Well, we can tie this right back to, to the Massachusetts stuff because when you get into these mystery airships, and I, I don't know if the, you know, you guys or the listeners have, have looked into this, um, and I'm, I'm wishing I could remember all the details, but there was a case uh, in Massachusetts. Mount Washington. The, they have a photograph of it, large. Uh, well, I was going to say there was a whole mystery airship thing um, in Massachusetts around 1909. And they had a, an inventor in Worcester. Uh, I think his last name was Tillinghast. And this guy uh, claimed that he was flying a ship yeah. from, from Worcester to Boston. There were a light scene around different towns. Uh, I think even maybe town towards around, but definitely in Massachusetts. And I believe what happened, this is very much a trickster-type story, that uh, he said he was going to reveal some stuff to the public. And I think he, he might have been in touch with other forces and stuff and when he when he went to show what he had he he couldn't come up with the goods but yet he claimed to be the guy who was doing these 
you know, these airship runs. And people were seeing things with the searchlight. And it was very much like what was going on down, down you know, in more Texas and stuff. But uh, a little bit later, 1909. Uh, but then the, the sighting stopped. It was just one of these uh, brief periods in time where and, and, uh, I think he was um, deluded by other, I think that he, you know, he was like a disinformation agent? <laughs> Indirectly, not meaning yeah, to. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's what actually happened. And uh, you know who i got to give credit, as I, I read about that years ago, but who kind of, I think, set me straight a little bit about it was uh, Chris Pittman actually was talking about that. I saw him a couple weeks ago. And i got to thank Chris for kind of telling me that aspect of it because I think he's right. So, yeah, you know, and I think a lot of these uh, things that we're discussing here tonight about the lens of how we view things plays into a lot of the work that you've done. Again, we mentioned earlier in the program about looking at a lot of this through, you know, the white European lens. And uh, we, we can't really get ourselves into the mindset of the Native Americans because our version of Native American history is what's been told to us by the winners, essentially. Uh, so we, we're, we have a, a basic inherent disconnect uh, to a lot of these sites and to a lot of these things that you research. Uh, one of the issues that we have now is there seems to be, uh, especially in the paranormal community, there seems to be uh, an emphasis on getting those connections back and being able to kind of, quote unquote, be at one with the natives and the native history. But the problem again with that is we're creating, and we discussed this at Lizzie Borden's last week, myself and Jeff Belanger, we're creating the narrative based on what we have found. So now we're hearing a lot, of, you know, whatever data is gathered when we go out to investigate some of these sites from a paranormal perspective, we're using that to kind of tell the story of the people. Uh, being, uh, you know, an archaeologist, being an anthropologist, how do you differentiate then the truth from the story that we're telling now, if you get what I, I don't, mean? I, I don't think you can anymore. Mm-hmm. I think there was such um, – the, the Native American culture, like, around here was really – Decimated. These people were forced to live like white people and wear white people's clothes. And, right. And the culture was so decimated and the religion was frowned upon so much, the, the religious mindset, that, uh, I mean, as an example, just a concrete example is I, I think I'm correct in saying that, that the word Pukwudgie itself is not like a Wampanoag word for this thing. We don't know, I think, that the people, that they had their own word for it and that sometimes Native American culture around here has actually amalgamated other Indian life, like whether it be Plains Indian or Indian stuff in the, in the Iroquois Federation, that it that they might not even know that the natives around here, I don't think even, the, the word has been lost is what I'm trying to say. Right. The actual word for Pakwaji in this area of the world, we now use the word Pakwaji, but Pakwaji, I believe, comes from, a, from an entirely different tribe as a word. And so it's just like, that's how decimated the culture is. Such a, you you use the word disconnect. I think that's entirely appropriate. There, there seems to be a lot of that. Uh, and we, we discussed, uh, we had there was the gentleman who wrote the book Iroquois Supernatural. We had them on a few years ago to discuss their research into the Iroquois nations. And a lot of what happens here and what is the native history of here comes from there. And it's not because there was that cross-culture aspect between the tribes, but it's because it's been adopted as being the history. And so, yeah, Pukwudgie is probably the word that when a Wampanoag of today wants to discuss these figures, he's going to use that word, having no uh, original emphasis uh, for that word. The actual word was lost. I mean, the the, the culture was completely, almost completely obliterated. Which and is such tra- tragedy. I mean, we'll never go back. We'll never be able to make that connection. And it's it's it, we're 
able less and less, you know, you, you, you encounter people when you travel around the country. I'm full-blooded Cherokee. You know, I'm, I'm full-blooded what have you. But you can't really find full-blooded Wampanoags anymore because the culture has been so diluted. And because now we see people who are just embracing what might be a small percentage of their heritage. Uh, and, and they're taking that on as being the most important part of their identity in order to keep it alive, which, you know, I understand and respect. But, again, you're not getting the same uh, the same history behind it as you would with some of these other tribes oh, across the country. I mean, th- those Plains Indians have much more of a continuity to, to the, the old times. I mean, I, I think I, that's true to say. You, you probably know better than I do, but by the time, you know, those tribes are reaching the point where they're being sent down the Trail of Tears, for example, you know, there's already very few Wampanoags left in this area to begin with. Definitely. Um, do you have any time for a couple tidbits from the? We have about four minutes. Four minutes. Okay. Last time I was here, I think you asked me, uh, "What do you What do you got for some good cases, Derek? Some bizarre things from Massachusetts?" And I, I think we talked about Hoover, the talking seal, mm-hmm. up in the New England Aquarium. And I think we talked about. Oh, I'm trying to think back, but you asked me about some 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 real good ones. Um, and uh, oh, I talked about the uh, the house that rained inside in Methuen, mm-hmm. the poltergeist stuff. But uh, a couple things that uh, I wanted to tell the viewers, uh, the listeners. Uh, that I thought were pretty good. Um, in Charles Turk Robinson's um, New England Ghost Files, there's a great story about this older couple that owned a pharmacy in the 70s. And when they would come in in the morning, there would be prescriptions filled out for non-existent customers. And the, you know, the wife's looking at the husband like, did you fill this out? Like, who is this? And he's looking at her like, and, you know, if you're the only two people, it's a mom and pop type operation. And uh, so if the listeners want to check into, uh, that's a great book, Charles Turk Robinson's. Uh, it's getting a little easier to find. There, yeah, there are more a, copies are popping up on eBay. That book will make you, if you don't believe in ghosts, by the end of that book you will. Um, another thing I thought was pretty good was I didn't mention last time was I have a case from um, uh, John Zepka, uh, a beekeeper out in, uh, I think it was North Adams, Mass. In 1954, when he died, the bees went to his funeral. Really? And it sounds like such a bizarre story, but then you get these other corresponding stories like over in England and, and whatnot. Well, scientifically, I can understand why that would make sense. Because the chemi- chemical thing? Yeah, they were following the chemical pheromones. He's in constant contact with them and constantly moving the queen around and things like that. So the bees would follow the scent. But you know what's wild, if you guys look into this, is there's this whole bee-like death connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I got a case, too, in um, 1966. Um, it was, this comes from a Ripley's Believe It or Not book, believe it or not, uh, where in, a, uh, in, I think it was St. Francis Cemetery, some cemetery in Taunton, where uh, these wasps, you know, cousins to bees, uh, made like a beehive hairdo on a statue that <laughs> so perfectly matched the coloration and style of the existing sculpture that people didn't notice it at first. Wow. And this, this you know, Greek goddess, or I don't think it's a religious figure, actually, I actually think it's almost like a more of a Greco-Roman looking thing, but she had a beehive hairdo that was made by wasps. <laughs> and there's actually this folk tradition in Europe and also in America now of uh, when someone important dies, like the master of the house dies, the telling of the bees, you have to like put black crepe paper over the bees, otherwise they'll fly away. And uh, in Pembroke, Mass., there is a library that uh, it's the former library now. There's a new library behind it, but it, I think it's now a senior center or something. But the old library in Pembroke had a B on top. It's the only library in New England, maybe Massachusetts or maybe New England, that has a B on top, you know, for spelling bees and things like that. Mm-hmm. And across the street is a cemetery, of course, diagonally across the street. So there's this whole, I've been researching this sort of bee. Uh, you know, when you think about it, in the Egyptian tombs, they had honey that you can still, you know, still eat. It's, it was uh, in Well, the, the image up. of the bee is also used in their alphabet. In hieroglyphics. Well, you guys can keep researching the bees. I'll leave that up to you guys because I'm afraid of them. 
Uh, ghosts, I'm fine with. Bees, yeah, not did so we, much. Did we get into the, the, the clown uh, scare there? Oh, we're going to have to save that for oh, next okay. time. Okay, well, that's, are, that's, just go look into Lauren Coleman. You'll, you'll come across that. And, and Chris has written extensively about it, too, Chris yes, Balzano. Exactly. But I think that's because he's afraid of clowns. Uh, that about does it for this week's program. We want to thank Derek Gunn for coming in with us. And you can check out his website, Amazing Massachusetts, linked up right on SpookySouthCoast.com. Also, again, we'll be back next Saturday night. Uh, we will be discussing True Crime Paranormal with the girls of Paranormal Expedition, the ladies, I should say, of Paranormal Expeditions. And uh, we'll have Stephanie Burke in here alongside as well as our co-host. And if you have any questions, any thoughts you want to get to us from the course of the week, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Or you can also uh, email – I'm sorry, you can also follow us on Twitter – at Spooky SC. That's the other way that you can get a hold of us as well. Uh, so we want to thank everybody. Until next week, we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>